Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Now, I just want to get a coffee, okay? Why Can is I the get camera a coffee? in my face right now? Are, Are you, you here partaking? You walked right up now, to you're me. In the red zone? I'm scared. I want to go for a coffee down there. Okay. Can I, can you, I go for a coffee? Still being arrested you? Right Do you now? live in this? No, I don't live here, but I, I'm... Where do you live? Alberta. Time for you to leave. I can't even go down there for no, a coffee. No, go grab yourself in the red zone right now. If you don't leave right now, you will be arrested. Do you understand me? I can't go for a coffee. Grab your stuff because if we see you, we'll be patrolling all day. If we see you again, it'll be different. Leave. Take your camera and get out of here. It was at that moment where a police officer in Ottawa grabbed the camera of a Canadian citizen said, get out or you're going to get arrested. Canada has shown an ugly side of itself over the last few weeks. None uglier than the last few days. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's so good to be with you. 833-468-8669. Got Tony is the number. Uh, The audio I just played. You can see the video over there at Rumble. Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. T-O-N-Y-K-A-T-Z. You'll be able to see it for yourself. You'll also find videos of a mounted police riding through protesters who were not engaged in any violence at all. You will see police officers trying to gain access to a coffee shop, demanding that it close because it's in an area where protesters are and they had the audacity to serve the protesters. Now I say to you, Canada is not America. Different values, different rules. But is this what we think of our neighbor to the north, Andrew Lawton joins us right now, Canadian broadcaster and columnist. He is the journalism fellow at True North, TNC dot news. He is also the host of the Andrew Lawton show. And uh, Andrew, I, I almost want to ask you to start from the beginning here because the beginnings of what we're seeing have not, there aren't necessarily connected to the trucker protest regarding mandates of vaccines, but rather to Canada's rules about lockdowns at the beginning of COVID. Do I have that right? Yeah, it it certainly morphed. At the very beginning, you had a a number of truckers that were upset at a vaccine mandate for truckers going back and forth between the United States and Canada. And they said, you know, we're going to take charge. We're going to get in our trucks because we can't work and we're going to drive to Ottawa. And in the span of a couple of weeks, it, it grew to becoming a movement that was bigger than truckers and about more than the trucker vaccine mandate and really become a a Canadian uprising against the vaccine mandates, the vaccine passports, which we have in some form or another in in various provinces and at the federal government level. And and now, even then, in the last few days, as the government has taken a very heavy-handed approach to quell this protest, it's morphed yet again into something that's really illuminated the the heavy-handed nature of, of the state here. So when we talk about the heavy-handed state, here's what we've seen. I'd like for you to put it in some kind of 
better understanding. We have seen officials talk about, uh, like, uh, Ottawa police saying we're going to fine these people, we're going to charge them, we're going to financially sanction them. We have seen government officials saying that we are working to ensure the same rules that we use for terrorists we're using for anybody donating uh, to a trucker. And then there's been this conversation about emergency orders, which I'm even having some trouble following. What emergency orders were put into place? And is it true that some of them are going to be made permanent? So this is a very important point you raise here, Tony. So last week, the government invoked the same law that it would invoke if we were in a state of war. It's it's an emergency act that gives the government significant powers. And while it's supposed to be uh, something that complies with the Constitution, uh, we're seeing already that in practice that isn't actually happening. And one of the more insidious dimensions of this is that the government is trying to go after anyone who has provided financial support to the convoy. So the millions of dollars that was donated by people across the country, including in your country and elsewhere around the world, people that said, you know, here's $10, I support the truckers taking a stand. The government is trying to and has succeeded at putting legislation forward that allows banks to freeze bank accounts. Now, the government's saying, oh, no, 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 we're only going after the really big ones. We're only going after the organizers. But there have been a number of reports, even I'm getting it more this morning, from people that say, yeah, I donated $50, and all of a sudden I can't access my bank account. I donated $50, and they don't even have access to their bank accounts at all. That's, that's they're, what they're the Canadians... frozen under these emergency measures talking to Andrew Lawton of True North TNC.news is where you can find him. How is that being seen? How is that being taken by what what I'll refer to as uh, everyday Canadians? Well, there were a lot of Canadians who were on board with the truckers at first and, and kind of turned on them the longer the protest went on, the more disruptive it got. And I think in some ways they may have lost the moral high ground to a lot of people at, at some point in the protest because they were camped out on, on Parliament Hill for, for a little over three weeks. But then when Trudeau went and invoked this Emergencies Act, he surrendered any inkling that uh, he might have had that he was able to claim the high ground. Uh, he's got civil liberty groups uh, against him. He's got a number of lawsuits and legal challenges from, again, some of those very groups, also from some of the truckers affected. And he's got Canadians that are looking at this and saying, OK, maybe I wasn't a fan of the trucker convoy, but I don't think, you know, Gladys Pinkerton should have her bank account frozen because she gave $10 to the convoy's fundraising campaign. So now uh, we, we see this, this part of the emergency order. Has there been, have there been other ones that we don't know about? We knew about some of the financial stuff. Are there other things that are going into place? And are they being, are they being removed, right? Or are these, is this now the way it is for forever? It's not forever. I mean, there is a time limitation on this. Justin Trudeau just spoke uh, less than two hours ago and said that he is keeping the emergency in effect, even though... In the last few days, police have managed to clear all the trucks and all the protesters out of downtown Ottawa. Now, it wasn't a seamless process. I was in Ottawa covering this, and I, on Friday, uh, got uh, a hefty dose of pepper spray in my face while trying to do my job as a journalist. So, so again, they did manage, though, to clear downtown Ottawa. There is no blockade. There is no convoy. There is no mass assembly of protesters in Ottawa but they're keeping the declaration of this state of emergency in place. And the reason they're doing so is so that they can keep going after the financial support like we were just talking about. 
But also, this allows them to designate any space in the country they want, really, the site of a, quote, unlawful protest. And when they do that, as in that video clip you played at the beginning of your show, they can arrest people for just walking down the street if they've decided that, you know what, this is a protest zone. This is a zone that we don't believe people are allowed to go into. So the implications of this are significant. The checks and balances are virtually non-existent in practice, even if they do exist in theory. So one of the things uh, that that this leads to, of course, is what is the future for Justin Trudeau and how is is he viewed? You know, you talk about how the truckers may have lost the moral high ground, which happens because things go on and on and on. It's like, okay, you made your point. Uh, You can go home now, and some people do indeed view it like that. Then you take a look at how Trudeau has done things, whether it be these emergency orders or whether it's saying of a conservative parliamentarian um, that you're standing with those waving swastika flags. Uh, What is the take on Trudeau, the prime minister, right now? It's tough to say because here's a guy that has historically been really Teflon-like. He he has managed to weather scandal after scandal after scandal because he does have that celebrity appeal to a lot of Canadians. Although, again, when people are seeing footage of protesters being brutalized, of an Indigenous woman getting knocked down by a horse and ending up in hospital, this does not reflect kindly on a prime minister who, again, for the first time in this country's history – is invoking this particular act. I'm not during 9-11, not at other points of COVID, not at other national crises, but he's invoking it now when there were a few hundred truckers and uh, several more protesters there. So I I do think it's going to be a challenge. He's got uh, members of parliament voting tonight on whether to uh, affirm, basically, the Emergency Act. And if he loses that vote, I don't believe he'll be able to stay on as prime minister. It just... He will not have a mandate. However, I do think it's going to pass. I I think he's got enough support from the parties that are even further to the left than his is. So this this all leads us uh, to to two, I I think, maybe more than two, but two interesting places. Uh, First was, of course, the question about what is the future of Justin Trudeau? And second is what what is the future of Canada? Uh, There there are moments that... um, do have an effect, and there are moments that we're told have an effect. In the United States, of course, we're told that January 6th and a riot at the Capitol had an effect. I'm here to tell you uh, the riots that took place across the United States for two years had far more of an effect. What we have seen over the last, we'll call it 30 days in Canada, how long does this stick with Canada? Has this changed people's perceptions from within, the, the perceptions of citizens? On, on how they view government and what kind of nation they are? I think it has to. We're not like the U.S. We're not a country that was born of rebellion or born of revolution. So we don't have that experience baked into our DNA. So that's why this was such a watershed moment for Canada and for Canadians. And even just looking at COVID specifically, the Canadian pandemic experience has been a lot more restrictive than the American pandemic experience. We've had lockdowns that have been in place for much longer in in some parts of the country, more severe lockdowns. In my own province of Ontario, not too far from where you are, uh, you can't uh, until I think March 1st go to a restaurant to eat if you're not vaccinated. You can't go to a concert or a movie theater. So these restrictions have remained in place when everyone else around the world has started to lift them. And I I think that for Canadians to finally say we've had enough and take a stand, 
like they did with this protest, was itself a turning point. Now, whether that was a flash in the pan or whether that's enduring, I don't yet know. But I do think it was a change that cannot be ignored. Andrew Lawton uh, from True North, T-R-U-E-N-O-R-T-H, T-N-C uh, dot news. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, by the way, uh, pepper spray to the face. Um, how you feeling? I'm feeling much better. I, I regained my vision after a, a little bit of time. Ended up having to take a, a quick trip to the emergency room and enjoy the splendor of Canadian healthcare. But I, I am all recovered now and was back at it the next day. But it was free, wasn't it? Great. Yeah, but the pepper spraying was also free. I would have, I could have done with neither. Okay, well, if you're going to be that way about it, Andrew Lawton, I appreciate you taking the time. As always, we'll check in with you in the future. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. There is good news out there. The question is, will it keep up? Tony Katz. Tony Katz, today, it's good to be with you. House Bill 1077 in Indiana just made its way through the House and is now going to get a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Did I say hello, Tony Katz? I forget sometimes. Guy Relford joins us right now. He is known as the gun guy on 93.1 FM WIBC in Indianapolis. Saturdays, 5 to 7 p.m., constitutional lawyer, uh, Second Amendment lawyer, and, of course, the mind behind the 2A project. And uh, you guys have been working on this. This is year number two in trying to get this done. Some people thought it was a dead deal. Not so much, man. Yeah, no, big news. As of about... 15 minutes ago, Tony, uh, the chairman of the, of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, uh, Senator Liz Brown, published the agenda for this Wednesday's uh, committee hearing um, coming up at 1.30 in the afternoon in the State House, And uh, our bill, 1077, constitutional carry, is on the agenda. Uh, and uh, uh, we, uh, we think it's got the votes in the committee to, to win, and we think it's got votes on the floor of the Senate to win. So now it's a matter of uh, allowing it to go forward to a vote, um, which, uh, again, why schedule it for a hearing if you're not going to go that next step? Well, there's, there's a couple of things uh, w- within there. We, we've seen before the constitutional carry was making its way through the Indiana legislature and then got stalled. And that was last year. And that was done under some levels of cover. Oh, it couldn't get out of committee, but you don't get to know how people voted in, in committee. What made this year different? I think um, the discussion in the caucus this year, and exactly as you just mentioned, that's where we've had trouble before. They go back into these Republican caucus meetings in the Senate, uh, and you don't know how your senator contributed to that discussion. Um, but uh, last year, uh, the the bill we had went back into that caucus uh, discussion and alive, and when the meeting was over, it was dead. And we've been demanding accountability, and we've been demanding a public vote. And our message to the senators, particularly the Republicans involved in this process, has been, look, we're going to hold you all accountable. If this doesn't get a public vote, we're just going to assume that you're against it. So if you want to voice your support for the constitutional rights, the Second Amendment rights of Hoosiers, uh, and you want to campaign in the future on the Second Amendment, you better go back into that caucus meeting and demand a public vote. And and we think that's what happened. I, I think they went back and said, look, we don't want to get tarred with the same brush um, that uh, everyone else is for coming back into these secret discussions. Uh, and for all our constituents know, we came back here to, to stab constitutional carry in the heart while campaigning for it or campaigning on the Second Amendment uh, every re-election. Uh, let's give it a vote. 
And and if senators are against it, great. Make a public uh, vote that you'll be accountable for back to your constituents. Vote your conscience. That's all we're asking for. And looks like we're finally going to get it done this year. So this bill is not about doing away with licensure. People can still get themselves a, a license to carry a firearm from the state, which would allow them reciprocity with other states. This is just the the legislation that says you don't have to go through that because you're allowed to carry a firearm, so say at the Constitution. Well, exactly. And, and, and it's an important point that we're not doing away with licenses because a lot of people – uh, who don't understand that point come out against constitutional in other states. Licenses will still be available uh, to future applicants. All currently issued licenses, your license, Tony, my license, will remain valid uh, for use in, for reciprocity purposes or any other purpose. Um, and uh, it, it'll they'll simply be optional for for law-abiding citizens to carry in Indiana. Um, if you're a felon, it doesn't apply to you. If you're a, a domestic batterer, it doesn't apply to you. If you've been adjudicated to be mentally ill, it doesn't apply to you. So it's only those people who can lawfully carry today and lawfully possess a gun under both state and federal law that this applies to. I apologize, by the way. I'm getting lots of excited texts here on my car phone, so I apologize. Well, you're you're you're, you're allowed uh, to do that. This happens on Wednesday. Let's assume that it passes the Senate. Now it goes to the hands of Governor Eric Holcomb, who has already said because the Indiana State Police are not in favor of this, he's already kind of hinted that he's not in favor of it. Does Governor Holcomb veto this legislation? I think there's a real possibility of that, which is why we're already working on uh, the idea that uh, the legislature would want to convene uh, and uh, in order uh, to bypass uh, to override his veto, which they can do in Indiana, as you know, and you've mentioned uh, with a simple majority. Um, but also, we're, we've been getting the message out to the governor's people as well that, hey, if he has the political aspirations that everyone seems to think he does, which is in particular to run for Senate, um, then he needs to consider how well that Republican primary is going to go. Uh, if he does or does not have the support of NRA, does not does or does not have the support of the 2A project, uh, and gun owners in general, uh, how how confident is he of getting through that Republican primary if he has an F rating from the 2A project and from the NRA, um, and people are communicating how he likes to campaign on the Second Amendment, but clearly uh, shot us in the back on that point. So um, I think that's going to be up to him. Uh, but if he does veto it, and I think there's a real possibility of that for exactly the reason you mentioned, we have to be prepared to ask the legislator to, to reconvene. My concern is that the, the folks in the Senate will say, well, we passed it, we did our job, we had our public vote, um, we're done now, and this all hangs on the head of Governor Holcomb for vetoing and it. And it that, might. That is, a real, that is a real concern. It might. Uh, Guy Relford, the 2A Project. You can hear my 93.1 FM WIBC on Saturdays. We'll keep updated on this. This is Tony Katz today.
What, we what, are we, what are we willing to give him? We have, we have made serious proposals and talked about changing, for, for instance, uh, the, the, the scope and scale of some of our exercises in Europe, being willing to talk about offensive missile capabilities uh, in Europe. Uh, we have, we have uh, certainly put forward uh, other, other proposals to, to try to convince Mr. Putin that we're, that we're serious. Mm. Okay. What has the administration learned from the chaos out of Kabul last August? Well, we're still digesting uh, what happened in, in August, Bill. I, I suspect your, your question is trying to, you know, get at sort of anything we learned from August that we're trying to apply now. They are two very different circumstances, Bill, and there's there's, there's not a lot of parallel between uh, what we're seeing now in Ukraine and what we see what we saw in Afghanistan. We were ending a 20-year war there, uh, and we were dealing with uh, a massive evacuation of, of a lot of people, 124,000, in the course of two weeks. Uh, this is not the same situation. This is isn't, this, this is actually trying to prevent a war from happening. And that's why, back to your earlier question, all of our administration officials have been out and about trying to find a diplomatic path forward. And at the same time, here at the Department of Defense, sh shoring up our, our uh, NATO allies, making sure they know uh, that we're with them and that our commitment to Article 5, collective self-defense, is, is one we take very seriously. That's John Kirby, Pentagon Press Secretary, um, Ned Price's State Department press secretary john kirby is pentagon uh press secretary and uh yeah that's falling on flat ears you're still digesting what happened in afghanistan here's what happened you left people to die and now nations don't trust you joe biden's incompetent and you left billions of dollars worth of hardware behind you left human beings behind you left a disaster behind and you thought it was great that's what happened that's what happened and yes, this is all having an effect on what's going on right now with Ukraine. And we're keeping our eyes on what's going on. Meanwhile, over uh, in the UK, Boris Johnson has announced restrictions. What COVID restrictions? First, we will remove all remaining domestic restrictions in law. From from this Thursday, 24th of February, we will end the legal requirement to self-isolate following a positive test. And so we will also end self-isolation support payments, although COVID provisions for statutory sick pay can still be claimed for a further month. We will end routine contact tracing and no longer ask fully vaccinated close contacts and those under 18 to test daily for seven days. And we will remove the legal requirement for close contacts who are not fully vaccinated to self-isolate. Until the 1st of April, we will still advise people who test positive to stay at home. But after that, we will encourage people with COVID-19 symptoms to exercise personal responsibility. Just as we encourage people who may have flu to be considerate to others. Well... Okay. Hey, everybody. You got to handle your own freaking business. Have a nice day. I can live with that. The Canadians can't live with that. The Australians can't live with that. We have many Americans who can't live with this. Seems like a rational way to do things. There's no need for restrictions at all. There was never a need for restrictions at all. It was never, ever necessary What's the value of a restriction? What was really gained from it? 
the answer is is very very little. I mean, when you take a look at at what has gone on in Los Angeles, restrictions on this, restrictions on that. When you ask the mayor Eric Garcetti why he takes pictures with a mask off, well, that's simple. There are restrictions, but you got to give the people what they want. Garcetti at SoFi Stadium without a mask at the NFC Championship and Super Bowl led to lots of criticism online. Do you think that you made a mistake? Did you learn any sort of lessons from the way that that all went down? And do you understand why so many people were so frustrated? I was abiding by the county regulations. For instance, at the Super Bowl, you know, I abided the whole time. You're allowed to eat and drink with the mask off. And I always gave people my face for a picture because that's what they asked for. I think that there's real news out there, and this isn't a real story. My advice is, if you're mayor, don't take the mask off for the picture. That's the best you could do? That's your answer? I did what the people wanted. I showed them my pretty face. Hey, if you're a mayor, don't do it. (laughs) I followed all the rules, except when I openly didn't follow the rules. I followed all the rules, except, of course, when I didn't. This is an argument being made by adults. It is unbelievably pathetic. It is ugly as can be. It is standard operating procedure for the elites, for the snobs. And there's a lot of elitism. There's a lot of snobbery going on out there. There's a there's a story. Where is the story? Like, so there was one story that I thought was ridiculous. And they were talking about Representative Ocasio-Cortez. And the story about Representative Ocasio-Cortez was that she flew home from her Texas trip in first class. I don't care. You know who else flies first class? Me. I don't care if she does or she doesn't. Does she pay for it personally, like the difference between coach and first? Well, you can discuss that and take a look at that. The argument being made is, well, she's an elitist, right? She talks about the people this and the people that. But in the end, she she's an elitist. Well, of course she is. Why is anybody surprised? You saw her at, at the uh, the Met Gala. Of course she's an elitist snob. Of course she hangs around with rich people. Anybody who thinks that Representative Ocasio-Cortez is, is of the people is out of their skull. These people lie to themselves on the daily. Of course they're lying to themselves. And they know it. We know it. They're lying to to each other. Anybody who thinks this is, of course, they they deserve what they get. But I don't care if she flew first class. It means, means nothing to me. I care that she's there in Texas doing these events for these Democratic Socialists who are communists. If anybody wants to believe that Democratic Socialist is a thing, you're more than welcome to. They're commies. They're commies in training, whatever you want to call them. They are what they are what they are. And so she's stumping for a couple of commies in Texas, and she's getting heckled by a pro-Palestinian protester. Of course, she's too kind to Israel and Jews, don't you know? So they got to heckle her. And she says, I don't believe that a child should be in a cage on our border, and I don't believe a child should be in a cage in the West Bank. 
What is she? What is she talking about? Who in the world is being kept in a cage in the West Bank? Who's who's being kept in a cage at the border? At least maybe now you're admitting that Joe Biden keeps kids in cages if we're going to now call them cages. But they were detention facilities under Obama. They were cages under Trump. And now they're back to detention facilities. It's, it's, it's hard to keep up with all you people. But now you're going to say that that's what Israel's doing? So now you've given them the, uh, the, the nice little bit of propaganda that they get to utilize everywhere? Don't you get that she hates Jews? All of these democratic socialists, communists, hate Jews. Every single one of them. They certainly don't believe in Israel's right to exist. You see, Tony, this is about Israel, so therefore it's not anti-Semitism. Sure, whatever you say, it is still the thing. Israel is guilty of keeping children in cages? No. Hamas is guilty of strapping bombs to mentally handicapped children and putting them on buses so people will die. That's true. That is is true. Israel goes out of its way not to bomb schools. Hamas goes out of its way to ensure they put bombs and resources in schools. That's true. But what do you expect from somebody as a lacking of intellectual prowess as someone like Representative Ocasio-Cortez? And can we discuss the fact that her Twitter game sucks lately? I know I've discussed it before, but it sucks. She used to be so good at it. She was so rough and tumble. And now it's like, I'm so sad. Look at me. Aren't I still important? The answer is, well, no. You're going to be overtaken. People are going to outleft you. Isn't that exactly what happened here? Can you imagine trying to outleft Acacia Cortez? But there it is. You're not saying enough bad stuff about Israel. You're not hating on them Jews enough. What's the matter? That district you represent getting under your skin? You're not willing to stand up to them? She represents the 14th. I'm assuming there's some Jews in the 14th district of New York. Democratic Socialists of America, of course, support BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanction. Boycott Israeli companies, divest from investment in Israel, and sanction Israel and Israeli companies. Now that's anti-Semitism. Beginning to end. That's the Democratic Socialists that she is campaigning for. What are we talking about? Of course she's a Jew-hating bigot, just like Ilhan Omar, just like Rashida Tlaib, just like the rest and those who support them, like Congressman Andre Carson of the 7th District of Indiana, Indianapolis area, who supports Rashida Tlaib and refers to her as my sister. You go and speak in in front of the DSA, this is what you're going to get. Now, it's possible to go speak somewhere where you, where you disagree. That is possible. So, for example, I, I, I talked about it earlier. I'll, I'll get into more of it. Tulsi Gabbard is speaking at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Of course, I'll be there. I will, will be there presented by Relay Indiana. Oh, it's going to be so fantastic. We're doing both shows, my morning show, my midday show, Morning Rumble. We'll be there. We've got videos that'll be coming uh, on, on the Facebook page for 93.1 FM WIBC. It's going to be sensational. We're going we're gonna to get everything. We're going to get the interviews. It's going to be fantastic. Tulsi Gabbard is speaking. And there are people on the left who are like, well, I guess she's done with the transition. Well, 
she's speaking at an event. And maybe we agree about some things like free speech. Maybe we disagree about some things like foreign policy. Am I to believe that Tulsi Gabbard is now a conservative? Of course not. Of course not. So you could argue that someone speaking at an event for Democratic Socialists maybe isn't an anti-Semite. But this is Ocasio-Cortez actively supporting and fundraising for them those candidates to win office to Congress. Sorry, that's you buying in part and parcel. Actually, I should say part and parcel. In totality, every bit of it, to their anti-Semitism. That's you. I'm not going to not notice. I think it would be crazy not to notice her bigotry. Absolutely crazy. Me, I, I, I notice, and it has nothing to do with her flying first class. First class, that's the only way to fly. If you're not flying private, which I've only done once in my life, and uh, and, and and let me say, it was uh, it was an experience. The the key to flying private. The thing that makes it better is not actually that the seat is more comfortable. Mine was not. It is that there is no thinking. They're like, hello. And then they take your luggage. And then the luggage is on the plane. And then you're on the plane. And then you take off. Like that is an incredible experience. Not having to go through all the rigmarole. Not having to deal with all the people. Not having all the hassle. You show up, you fly. That's amazing. An amazing feeling. And there is no other way. There is no other way to go at all. But flying first class, every chance I get. Uh, uh, when I when I head out to Florida for CPAC, it's the big seat because I had to take Spirit Airlines because it was a nonstop. I don't know about you, but anything I could do to avoid a connection, anything I could do. I'm doing it. So I do have the, the big seat, and I did buy the drinks. Was that wrong? Was I not supposed to buy the drinks already? I just figured I, I know what's coming. I might, I might as well be able to sip. So that's my that, – that is my plan. The queen has COVID. That story coming up. I'm Tony Katz.